Hi, and welcome to The Rock's podcast. We are currently going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings. We pray that these sermons encourage your faith. Now let's join Pastor Ross as we continue studying the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Heavenly Father, we just, uh, we acknowledge Jesus' words to us that apart from him and his help, We can accomplish very little. We need the grace of God to discern spiritual truths. And Lord, so thank you for the word of God doesn't have its origin as you have told us in any human being, but it's the God-breathed word. So help us to receive it as it is, the word of God, and to be wise, to not just hear it, but put it into practice so we can be blessed. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Out of the literally hundreds and hundreds of possible prayer requests that would fill your mind and heart, if you only got one shot, one prayer, one prayer request of God the Most High, what would you ask? Well, the answer kind of depends on what currently is your situation in life. You know, various needs come and go. As we grow in this life, different uh, requests for different seasons and what have you. But sometimes there's something so distressing, so heartbreaking, so overwhelming that you can scarcely think or pray about anything else. You bow your knee, you open your mouth and up bubbles right to the surface. The request, the request that has no rivals because it's the most important issue in your heart and in your life. Among requests, it has no rivals. This morning, here in Mark chapter 9, you're going to meet a man that has a request with no rivals. There's only one thing on this dad's mind. There's only one desire in this father's heart. Let me introduce you to him and his request. Now, when they came to the other disciples, they're coming down the hill from the the transfiguration. Uh, They saw a large crowd around them, the nine that were left at the bottom of the hill, and the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, arguing with the disciples. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, now this is interesting, they were overwhelmed with wonder, we'll talk about that, and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked the Pharisees. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him, and when the spirit 
saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. <laughs> Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. And Jesus gave him back to his father. A nice touch that Luke adds. Verse 28. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, uh, why couldn't we drive it out? <laughs> he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. All right. That is the passage that we're going to reflect on this morning. And so it should be a lively home fellowship group uh, topic tonight. <laughs> Amen. Well, it's a bit of an ordeal, as I like to call it, because it was an ordeal. The disciples fumbled the ball, which kind of started things going. The father's desire is there, but his faith apparently has a ways to go. Uh, but despite the struggles and the weakness of men, Jesus comes through. And that's the point of every passage in the Gospels, that despite the weakness of man, despite the evil opposition, despite being against all odds and no hope in sight, Jesus comes through because he is the son of God. And so the father is going to get his boy back and so this miracle is rightly called an exorcism. It is the fourth and final one that Mark is going to mention. And it's packed full of invaluable spiritual insights for every single heart that labors under a crushing need. For every Christian, for every believer who has just a tiny bit of faith and a huge, gigantic, crushing request of God a request that has no rivals. It's your only prayer because perhaps it's your only son or daughter or something of great worth to this. We look now as this ordeal unfolds. Um, we see three things. Okay, note takers. First, you're going to see some failed disciples, 14 through 18 verses. Faltering father, you see that for point two. And point three, a faithful savior. Failed disciples, a faltering dad, and a faithful deliverer, if you will. And so these are going to serve as our talking points this morning. And uh, let's dive in. Verses 14 now through 18. All right, so first point, the epic fail of the disciples. All right, so on the screen before you, verses 14 through 18, you've got Jesus 
Peter, James, and John, Luke tells us, they're coming down the mountain the day after Jesus was gloriously transformed and they got, you know, temporarily Jesus lifted the veil of his humanity and we saw him for who he really is, equal to God in every way. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a human being, that makes him the God-man, come to lay down his life, the sinless sacrifice for sins. And so uh, we see them coming down to rendezvous and rejoin the nine disciples, right? Nine and three, 12, right? Who hadn't accompanied them up the hill. So now, as your verse is saying, verse 14, these nine are surrounded by these enemy, the, the long-robed, hostile, hypocritical Pharisees, the teachers of the law, means the teachers of the Old Testament, who hated Jesus. They were jealous of Jesus. He called them out all the time. And so um, they are there, and uh, there's this altercation between the religious authorities and the nine disciples. And, and we've got Jesus and the three coming down the hill to rendezvous with them. And the crowd sees Jesus and they're stunned with awe. Jesus just walking down the street. So that's in there to, to cue you to something because they're, they're stunned. And they see him, they run. And uh, Jesus' first question, why are you arguing with my guys? Verse 16, he wants to know. He's not very happy. And the father is going to answer him. He's the man in the crowd. And he fills Jesus in there, verse 16, really, and 17 and following. He says, my boy, in your text, he's demonized. And he gives quite a graphic, horrific description of his suffering and then he outs the disciples and he says, um, I brought him to the nine and they failed. And that, Jesus, is what started the dispute. Now, that helps us with that, that they had failed. Now, is this the reason why the nine weren't invited up to the mountain, Mount Hermon, to see the glory of God is because their spiritual condition did not warrant it. Their Christian maturity, they are not acting on the knowledge of the light that Jesus has provided them. And, and that's borne out by the passage is because they have failing prayers and failing faith. And so some commentators say, hey, you know what? Uh, Peter, James, and John, they got invited up to the transfiguration and the others did not, not because Jesus plays favorites, but because these three guys are like, they're doers. They hear something, they put it into action. They don't always get it right, but they're willing to act on the knowledge and the information and the revelation that Jesus provides. They take it, they handle it, they ingest it, and they practice it. And so they're ready for more. The other nine, he, he keeps asking them, why are you guys so willfully ignorant? He asked them. We just saw that in a text. He says, guys, are you guys so dull? The word just means kind of spiritually dense. He says, I, I've been with you for three years. Why aren't you catching this? And so a lot of commentators say, oh, this is a good <laughs> display of why they're not at the top of the hill. You know, they're waiting down at the bottom. One writer said, we must steward well that which God has already supplied in knowledge and spiritual insight before he grants more. 
you know, I, it comes to mind just a little analogy. You know, if dad says to a kid, hey, I want this room cleaned up, man. Are you a hoarder or what? You know, this is terrible. And it smells so bad in here, we got to use a bottle of Febreze, you know? Just deal with this, right? And, and the kid doesn't do it, right? And then the kid wants to go to Scandia, or he, he wants to go to Disneyland, or he wants to spend time with Dad. Hey, let's go get some Froyo or whatever. And Dad says, what about the room? What about what I've already revealed that has to happen? When I've, I've asked you to do something, and you said, no, I'm going to keep it the way I want it. Right? But then I want to go to Disneyland. He says, no, no, you take care of the trash, take the trash out. Fix up the room. Doesn't have to be perfect, but just show me that you're in compliance. You're working with me. You're cooperating. Then more. Then the transfiguration. Then we could go up the mountain and hang out together. That's kind of what commentators say is going on. And notice so they come down from their mountaintop experience. Now, we, we Christians use that term, don't we? And if ever there was a mountaintop experience, uh, this was one of them with all of that glory and um, just that wonder, that spectacular display of the glory of God on that mountain. Uh, what happens when they come down immediately? <laughs> lots of trouble, lots of need, lots of chaos. And let me assure you that every time you have a mountaintop experience. What's a mountaintop experience? You've, you, every Christian has highs and lows, right? When, uh, the highs are what we call, wow, a mountaintop experience. We probably got it from the transfiguration. You know, where you have a breakthrough, spiritually speaking. Maybe you're at a conference and you get away and a speaker says something. God just kind of sends it into your soul like a lightning bolt and unlocks something that has stuck you for a long time. And suddenly, you know, God's presence feels so near to you. You have, spiritually speaking, warm fuzzies. And, 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 and suddenly things are better at home. And you're more bold. And you share the gospel with somebody. These are called mountaintop experiences where you get that glimpse of Christ like the guys had. And you kind of hear his voice like the guys had heard a little more clearly that happens and you're overcoming sin and you're like wow but and of course you want that to to stay you want you want to live like that right Peter did well how do we know that well he says to them hey I'm going to build you guys little houses uh, one for Elijah one for Moses and one for Jesus. You guys don't need to go anywhere. We certainly want to go back down in the trenches because I know what's down there. But up here, so wow, everything's, you know, it's emotionally charged. And yeah, so I'm going to build a house, going to build a house, going to build a house so we can hang out here. No can do. It says in the, it says in the other text, the next day, it's just he's equipping, he's inspiring for life inevitably where we live, not on the mountaintop. We live in a broken world, a creation that's been subjected to futility. Nothing works here. The Bible says that. This is where we bring that light and inspiration. We come down. And what's meeting them? A brokenhearted dad, a demonized boy, failed Christians, pastors who are supposed to have had some answers that come up short. A big argument with the opponents. 
That's what's waiting them and you and me every single day. But you know, the good news is that when Jesus is with you, when you come down the mountaintop, oh, everything's going to get done. The job gets done. The dad's going to get his boy back. The disciples are going to learn a lesson. The dad's faith is going to grow, and he's going to silence those scribes and those Pharisees. And so Jesus is with us in the trenches. He inspires us in the high moments, but he can't always have the warm fuzzies. you got to go down into reality. Amen? Amen? And so let's dive in and see what was waiting for them. It's right there staring at you in your verses, right? What's up with the hubbub, first of all? What's all the commotion about? So I already told you, the teachers of the law, the law means the Old Testament. The teachers of the Old Testament, Jesus called hypocritical, whitewashed tombs, meaning you look good on the outside, but inside you're just rotting corpses because they were religious hypocrites. And so he'd call them out. He called them, these teachers of the law, he called them a brood of vipers, That means like a cluster of snakes. You see, Jesus wasn't interested in winning friends and influencing people necessarily, you know. And what were they doing there? Oh, they've been following. You've been seeing the stories. They are following because they're gathering facts and accusations to use against him in his trial that's coming up in six months. So they're informants and they're spies, And they're pretending like, oh, we're just here to follow because we're just all, you know, we're so interested in what's going on. They hate Jesus and they want him dead. And and these snakes are arguing. The word there in the Greek means to give somebody a hard time, to hassle them, to taunt them, to accuse them. So that's what's going on with the Pharisees to the nine who just failed. So what are they doing? The Pharisees in their religious robes are publicly mocking and taunting them in their failure. Hey, Philip, what happened, man? You run out of power, Andrew. You know what? What's up with that? We said, we told everybody, hey, everybody, the crowd comes around, the crowd. Hey, everybody, we told you they're charlatans. They just want your money, man. We're the real deal. We're the authorities. We're the Sanhedrin. These guys, come on, they're fishermen. No wonder they can't do anything. Oh, in the name of Jesus. And the guy's still seething. And that's what happens. They have the power. Oh, two chapters ago, Jesus gave them authority over evil spirits and sent them out to do a job. And they had success. So something they did, and we'll come up upon that later, failed. And listen to me, because it's so true today. Their failure opened the door to Jesus' opponents, to God's enemies, to give them a foothold to be able to denounce the credibility of the gospel because of their foolish behavior. Oh, may it it never be said of me that some unbeliever, some opponent of God could use my life to bolster their own unbelief, to encourage them to continue down the path that leads to destruction because they can point to me and say, you call that a pastor? Do you know how many pastors have been used like this? 
because they got crazy about money or about their secretary, and they make it on the, the front, front page of, of every newspaper, and then you've got the teachers of the law. Aha! Told you. Phony baloney. You see? And the disciples, because of bad choices, open the door. But Jesus is in Papa Bear mode, and he comes down, and he says, in essence, why are you hassling my disciples? And now, just his tone, his authority, something else is going on, and why you don't hear a peep from them for a couple chapters. All Jesus had to do was ask the rhetorical question, which meant, you knock it off. He goes straight to them, and he says, what you hassling them for? Well, it's enough to hear the voice of God because he is God, right? But he had something else working in his favor because <laughs> when the crowd sees him, and this is what gives it away, there's a word used that gives away what's going on. They see Jesus talking uh, to the Pharisees and they are got their wind knocked out of them. They're overwhelmed. They're amazed. The word there in your text that says that they were overwhelmed with wonder just to see a guy walking down the street is ekthembeo, and it's only used three times, so we know what's going on. The first time it's used is in the transfiguration where Jesus says, check this out, and flexes his muscles, and then his face is like the sun shining, and his brilliance and his clothes look like lightning, and the disciples were, were ekthembeo, all right? The next time it's used is here. And all Jesus is doing is walking down the street. And they were ekbentheo, right? And then the only other time it's used is on Resurrection Sunday morning when the stone is rolled away and there are two angels and their clothes is dazzling as lightning and their faces shining like the sun. And the Roman guards are... Ekthambeo. Jesus just came down. He's got some lingering glory on his face because that word is only applied when people see dazzling displays of the glory of God. So just like Moses, if Moses can come down from Mount Sinai with the ministry of death, with law that said, do this or die, how much more the son of God coming down where he's going to lay down his life for the sins of the world? Shouldn't he have a little shine too? So he has a little bit of a shine, which will explain a lot why we don't hear a peep out of the Pharisees because his face is like, you messing with my guys? They're like, no. <laughs> and they uh, disappear. And it would explain a lot uh, that follows. So here's what follows. The dad informs Jesus it was the failure of the disciples that gave rise to this altercation. But he also includes some really disturbing details about his son's condition. It sounds like a seizure disorder. It's foaming at the mouth, grinding of the teeth, uh, bodily rigidity. It's a spirit he's saying that's causing this. And later we learn that he can't hear and he can't speak. Now, some might question, does this imply today that everyone who has a seizure disorder, epilepsy, who's deaf or blind or crippled, 
are they demonized? And the short answer is no, of course not. Now, I've got a lengthy quote, and when they're long quotes, it's a paragraph, I, I like to just copy it up for you to see and read along with me and digest it together because it's important. Okay, so the question is, well, how about people who have ep epilepsy today? Where, where, how should we think of that? The scriptures clearly trace all physical ailments and suffering in this life back to the fall of man, to the sin, and to ultimately the devil that deceived us. However... It would not be wise to associate all physical maladies with demons. Jesus' death and resurrection undermined their vast presence and limited their power. He did kind of a spiritual cleanup of the earth through the death and resurrection. He didn't wipe them all out. But there's a vast difference between before Christ went to the cross and resurrection and now. Having, and here's the proof for that. Here's Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed the spiritual powers and authorities, he disarmed them. Spiritual powers is what's got the kid. And uh, well, look at that. They're called authorities in the invisible realm. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Ah, okay. So now here's an example of somebody who has an infirmity to the glory of God and has nothing to do with the devil. The man who was born blind, John 9, had not sinned to cause his blindness, nor was he demonized. He had a birth defect that God was happy to use for his own glory and purpose. So let us be careful not to either be overly naive in these matters because the devil is alive. He says, watch out, your adversary is like a lion roaming about looking for someone to devour. So he's not, he's not concluding, he's not out there, he's not working through suffering, but use some spiritual discernment, have some balance. So on one hand, uh, for the devil is alive at work, but on the other hand, let's not be too quick to see demons where there are no demons because brokenness is kind of the rule of the day and physical abnormalities, same word, find their natural source in fallen men. In other words, we were born into a world where our genetic code has been corrupted. That's what the Bible teaches us. And Jesus came to heal that and to reverse the curse. So in the meantime, thank you for that verse. We'll go back. Oh, thank you. You're way ahead of me. Look at you. All right. So in this case, it is a demon. It's called an unclean spirit, and he's brought the boy to Jesus' disciples. They tried and failed, and now continuing on. Now, here's Jesus' reaction when he says, I brought them to your disciples, who Jesus had given them authority, told them to do it, and they've had success. But this time, no, it was a laughingstock. So here's Jesus' response. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long do I stay with you? Six more months, physically, will be the answer. How long must I put up with this? Bring the boy to me. So they bring him. You see the confrontation and uh, the father's reaction. Let's talk about this. The faltering father. And of course, what's faltering here in your text is his faith. So let's talk about that. Now, 
Jesus, meek and mild, as he's often called by folks who don't read the Bible, um, he has a rare display of divine displeasure here. Those words are really sobering. They're coming from the mouth of the Son of God, and he's not happy. Well, my question is, who's he not happy with? All right, who's he talking to? There's a lot of people in the crowd. There's the nine. He's not happy with them, right? There's the Pharisees. Not happy with them. There's the dad. He's a little disappointed with the dad. So, we need to talk about who he's upset with. When he says unbelieving generation, generation kind of means all the people born and living at the same time. So in other words, that would qualify everybody in the chapter. Now, Peter, James, and John, I think they get a pass on this one because they've been um, uh, on their best behavior, you know. Uh, but everybody else in, in the chapter is uh, sort of labeled with this uh, unbelieving generation thing. It suggests that he's frustrated. Now why? The crowds. The crowds are driving him crazy. He keeps saying in their presence, and this is God in a human body, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. This is God in a human body. So his teaching is clear. He's not boring. He's not confusing. When God speaks, it goes straight to you. And he's been saying, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen God the Father. That's very clear. And yet, the crowds are saying, when they ask, who is he? He's John the Baptist. He's Jeremiah the prophet. He's one of the prophets from long ago. Did, did I just say that? Jesus would say, I've been telling you over and over again. Can John the Baptist speak to dead people and raise them up? Can John the Baptist walk on the water? I told you I'm the son of God. I came down from heaven. Who can come down from heaven but God? Right? But they keep saying, he's Elijah the prophet. And they're keeping chasing him down for the loaves of bread. He made the loaves for uh, 5,000 people. The next day they come looking for the loaves, but not the Lord. They want the signs and the wonders. Uh, they want the shine. They saw the shine and they came running. But they don't want the Savior. They don't want to commit. They just want to be like emotionally charged up. And so he says, unbelieving generation, three years of God in your midst and you're still playing games. Wow. Well, so he's not happy with the unregenerated crowd. He's not happy with the religious leaders. <laughs> Those teachers of the law, know the Bible way better than me and every other scholar. They memorize like the whole Old Testament that has 300 prophecies of Jesus down to uh, where he'd be born, <laughs> what he'd look like, where, how he would die, how he would live, what kind of ministry he'd have, where he would live. And instead of welcoming them, they, they're conspiring to kill him. So, of course, they're included in the oh, unbelievable, uh, un. Uh, unbelieving generation. And let's talk about the dad now because he's front and center. Now, here's where the commentators say, hey, catch the clue. Something very strange is happening here, which will, will reveal something about the father because Jesus is not going to heal the boy and send him back to a household of unbelief. They live near Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was known for worshiping demons. 
Right. And so they would bring their babies to the idols and offer them up. And this is how it all started. So Jesus needs to do some spiritual surgery on the guy, open him up, and here's how he does it. He asks him what appears to be a random question, but the commentators say, what? Look at the timing. The boy is in a fit. He, the demon is manifesting on the ground in front of them, and Jesus wants to chat it up. Oh, Jesus wants to know, whoa, how long has this been going on? Well, the guys, the kid is arched and foaming and gasping. And Jesus wants to start a question as if he doesn't know how long it's been going on. So commentators saying, whoa, red flag. Jesus knows better than the dad how long this has been going on. So what's he trying to say? Oh, it's not good for the dad. He's saying, how long has this been going on? While the kid's seizing, how long have you let this go on? Dad, because of your unbelief. How long have you kept going back to the shrine at Caesarea Philippi? How long have everybody in Israel has heard that the Messiah, it's been three years. Everybody in Israel has heard that there's someone who's raising the dead and casting out demons. A woman from Syria knew. Syria, Lebanon, Jordan has heard. How long, dad, did you stay in unbelief at your son's expense? Because it was uncomfortable for you to fall in line, swallow your pride, get down on your knees, and surrender your life to God. And this, he's seizing while Jesus and him chatting it up. And this is okay with you. Mom and dads today, <laughs> unbelief, boyfriends, girlfriends, affairs, drugs, DUIs, moms and dads dragging their feet. They know the gospel. They live in America. They know there's a Bible. They know there's a heaven. They know there's a savior. They know they need to repent of their sins. They know what they're doing is wrong and that they've been entrusted to care for kids that God gave them. And instead, they drag their own heels with faith, without faith, at the expense of the pain that it's going to bring to those little ones. Jesus says on that day, men and women will give an account to God for such behavior. That is why we, we all in this room are very thankful for cro the cross of Christ. But it does not change this fact, O Christian. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15 says, our Christian faithfulness will be tested on that day and that we will give an answer to God for everything done in our body, quote, good and bad. That judgment for Christians does not end in condemnation. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 is very clear. Everybody is in heaven. But in faithfulness, in justice, God reveals the truth about how we built our Christian lives. And commensurate with your faithfulness will be your reward. So you can either gain reward or lose reward in that day. And Christian parents, so-called Christian parents, 
who, who, who will just for the sake of selfish ambition or some kind of quick thrill, put your kid, set them up for spiritual disaster because you wanted what you wanted when you wanted it? Loss of reward if you're saved. And if you're unsaved, things are even worse. So he's putting the dad through a little bit of the fire. How long has this been going on? <laughs> Did you notice that I had to bring the entourage to you, sir? But everybody in the gospel stories seemed to be bringing their kids to me. But I saw your son. I saw the suffering. So I made sure we went down your street. And thank you for coming out of the house <laughs> and bringing your son with the tiny little bit of faith that you had. No, he's not happy right now with the father. And so now, now he's, he's pulling it out of dad. And so uh, he says, it's shocking. It's so terrible. Yes, it's been going on for the three years that you've been doing your ministry. I get it. Okay, yes. Uh, and, and so bad. If you can do something about it, please have pity on us. And Jesus' eyes get wide. And Jesus kind of goes, if I can what about the shine on my face? Don't you connect with my power to be able to do something? Have you not heard the gospel, the testimonies, the word of God, the preaching? Come on. Well, what's not helping him is the disciples who are connected to him tried and failed. And so the little bit of faith that the poor guy did have is cut in half, at least. And so he says, if... If you can, and Jesus says, listen, man, everything, look at your text, everything is possible for him who believes. Conversely, nothing is possible for the unbeliever. And here's what he means by this, because this passage gets perverted, theologically speaking. Jesus is not guaranteeing that whatever we firmly believe will receive, he's simply saying that when a person has faith in him, God is able to work the impossible. He's not saying go around saying, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. I, and it's going to happen because God said, with faith, this is going to happen. No, he said it's possible to happen according to God's will. He lets a lot of hard things happen to us, and we can't kind of faith it away, you know? Amen. All right, that, wasn't, that was a little less enthusiastic than I was hoping for, but I'll take it nonetheless. And so here's Dad's shining moment. What a beautiful display of honesty. He says, if I can, come on, man. I, nothing would be impossible. The kid is seething on the ground. If I can. So for the sake of what Jesus is pointing at, he says, I do believe I got a tiny little bit. You know, it didn't help me that then Andrew and Thomas stretched out their hand and nothing happened, but I've got, I've got a spark. And then he says it. He says, Lord, help my unbelief. Because I've got a little bit, but it's mixed in with doubt. It's not perfect. It's not enough. But with you, you could help me. Supply what I'm lacking. Fill in the gap for me. And the Lord, I imagine him just kind of smile and relieve and say, now, 
we are cooking with gas. We can work with this, you know. So as soon as he said, I mean, that's a prayer God will always answer. I think I got saved because of a prayer. Six months before I walked in that bar and just had a like, whoa, wake up call. I'm a Christian experience there. My father, my Jewish dad from Brooklyn, as you all know, he's reading the Bible at the dinner table. I got up and left and just thought, Dad, you've had a nervous breakdown. It's against your religion to accept Jesus as a Jew. Come on. And my dad had to give me a lecture about that, you know. And so I, after dinner and at bedtime, I'm laying in my bed and I said, I have a little bit of faith. And I'm a little bit concerned because I see the change in my dad. I'm just talking in my bed. And I just say, if there's a hell and you are listening up there somewhere, oh, make sure I don't miss it. Make sure I don't miss heaven because I sure don't want to go to hell. That was it. That was the thought, right? I got enough faith to talk to you out there somewhere, wherever you are, (laughs) you know. So if you're real, go ahead. And then here, I'm just, this is not in my notes, surprise. (laughs) For the next six months, oh, he did things to get my attention. Oh, I connected the dots lots of time. I have goosebumps thinking about it. I'd be, I was standing at Powell Street cable car, waiting for a cable car. And there was a guy with an open Bible preaching. And I'm watching him. I'm in a crowd. And I'm thinking, "Uh uh-oh, he's going to come up and talk to me. I just had that thought. He's going to find me back here. I'm hiding behind four people, right? And he makes his way straight to the crowd right in front of me and says, excuse me, to the person in front of me. And then says, sir, do you know Christ is your personal savior? And I'm like, I I told him, I knew you were going to ask me that. And he said, how would you know that? And I said, I just feel like God is hunting me down. (laughs) And why? Because I prayed the prayer. And God said, well, I'm answering your prayer, silly. And then now I'm writing them all off. Oh, that's good. Coincidence, coincidence, coincidence. Why? Because nobody wants to give up their sin when they're 19 years old, right? And so he says, help me. And if you Ask God to help you believe. He will answer the prayer, and then God help you if you ignore that. Because on that great day, he will say, not my will be done. Sadly, your will be done. So don't let that happen to you. I think it's time uh, to finish up. Let's see Jesus go into command mode. (laughs) That's my favorite part. When Jesus saw the crowds running, you know, they just want to, the sightseers, here they come. Uh, He rebuked the evil spirit, said, you deaf and mute spirit. I love the way he just takes authority. I, not God, I command you, because he is God. Come out of him and never enter him again. And you see the theatrics and all of this, and he gives them back happy ending, and then the disciples want to know what's up, what happened to us. Let's talk third point, finish up with our faithful uh, Savior. So here comes the crowd, and you know, it doesn't take much to get a mob mentality going, and so uh, Jesus saw that coming, and he doesn't want to perform 
his miracles for gaping sightseers, right? <laughs> Who That's all they're interested in anyway. Nobody's even going to get saved out of that. They just want to come and see the theatrics. So he's going to beat that by wrapping up now. And so here come the orders. Here comes the Son of God who Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says, by Christ, the universe leapt into existence. So the Son of God, here he goes, flexing his muscles. He says, I command you, you deaf and mute spirit identifies it. And he says, I command you. That's the I command the stars. They come out and they know their places because that's the one who's in charge of the stars. Christ is the one who tells the ocean waves how far to go. He tells dead people, sit up now, and, and they obey. He's the one. He gives the orders. It's just beautiful to see him doing that. And by the way, coming to a neighborhood near you with the natural disasters, the rumors of wars, the famine is the third sign. Did you know, I, I'm like, okay, rumors of war, <laughs> we got that one, right? Earthquakes in various places, got it. Natural disasters, done. Then it says famine. And I'm like, oh, I wonder where we are with famines. I Google famines. The worst famine in the world the UN has ever recorded is this year. Google it yourself. So all of those signs are in place, and here's what's coming. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud command. And what's he command? That we who are alive and love him will be caught up out of the way before the judgment of God's wrath comes on a Christ-rejecting world. That's just the Bible. That's my, not my interpretation. That's not what I thought up. I'm just teaching you the Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 to the end of the chapter. But it comes with a command. He says, come up here. And Jesus said, two will be in a kitchen. One goes, one stays. Two will be at a job site. One goes because he'll command his child up and out of harm's way. And then seven last years where Jesus said in Matthew 24, if those days had not been cut short, not one survivor would be left. It would be the greatest tribulation that has ever been since the dawn of time, nor will ever be again. That's where you get the word great tribulation from Matthew 24. So all that to say, we're in kind of this strange world where even the newscasters on the left are saying, is this the end of the world? I heard one say that. And I answered them, yes, <laughs> it is. Get in the boat, man, get in the ark. And the ark is Christ Jesus, our Lord. I digress, but you know, you're used to it. Uh, the, last, <laughs> the last beautiful scene is he looks like a corpse. The spirit went out with a fight, whoa. And then he looks dead on the ground, and Jesus picks him up and gives him back to his dad. What a scene. Come on. You see him picking up the boy. There's an exact scene in Luke chapter 7, but only with a mama. And the dead son is coming out. She doesn't have a husband. She's a widow. 
She doesn't have any other children. It's really sad. They're coming down a hill. The boy's dead on a, on a stretcher. And Jesus stretches forth his hand and touches him and says, young man, I say to you, get up. And everybody's like, yeah, right, he's dead. And he gets up. And it says Jesus scooped him up. A young man scooped him up, went over to mama, and gave him back. So now you've got two pictures of, a, of Jesus scooping up a little boy and giving back to daddy and scooping up a little boy. Darn it. It gets me every time. Scooping up the little boy and giving him back to mommy. That's God's heart. To give our boys and our girls back to their Christian mommies and their believing daddies. And as impossible as that may seem to you, Jesus is here to tell you today, dad and mom, with faith in me, all things are possible. Amen? Amen. Now it's time for the disciples to eat some humble pie and, and bless their hearts. They have the courage to say in the house when nobody's around, okay, let us have it. Why did we fail? Very interesting. He says, because... Um, he says it right there. This kind of serious evil can only come out by prayer. They looked at each other like, what? We prayed, we prayed. In the name of Jesus, come out. I mean, that's a prayer. No, here's what he's saying. Some translations add fasting. Now, he's not implying you should have stopped with a seizing kid and gone off and fasted a week and then came back. He's saying serious conditions require serious discipline, spiritually speaking. And so in this case, you ought to have been walking tight with God, walking, thinking to the scriptures, being filled with the spirit. But let me just suggest what everyone else suggested in the books. They've been apart from Jesus, the nine, for a week. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up for a treat while the rest of them had to stay below. So did we get a little bit of guy thing going on? Nobody's leading them. Jesus and the three leaders are gone, so what are they doing? Are they upset? Hey, Peter, James, and John, think they're all that, you know? And let me assure you that was going on because up until the Last Supper, they're saying, I'm better than you, I'm greater than you. That Last Supper, they're arguing which one of them are the best, which one of them are the greatest. And so it, doesn't, it wouldn't surprise me. So what are they doing? They're taking hikes. Taking a hike is nice. But when Jesus just said, hey, heads up, they're going to kill me in six months. They're going to crucify me, and they got a cross for you too. And they do die. Now's not the time for vacation. Two chapters ago, they took their vacation. It's not time to walk through the hills, talk like guys, kind of let the hair down kind of blow off a little steam, not talk about the scriptures, not pray. Oh, they prayed over their little lunches. But he said, if, if you're going to walk not in fellowship with me, not filled up, not ready, not instant in season and out of season, when that little day of evil pops up and that's how it happens, 
You're not ready for it. So this kind of serious situation isn't a magic formula of, oh, I know what to do. Oh, I know what this is. In the name of Jesus, come out. No, sorry. There's no lifestyle that supports the faith and the connection to Christ where Christ can flow through you and do his work. Why? Because you haven't been in fellowship with him. So that's what he's saying. This kind of thing isn't something you just walk into and say the magic formula, and that's what happens. Christians, they go to church one Sunday, and that's it. They don't open their Bible. They don't pray. They don't listen to worship music. They're, they're just getting by with fumes, and then the secretary makes your move. And then the, you hit a button, and up comes the porn. You didn't even ask for it. But see, because you're not walking in the spirit, you're not in that spirit of fasting and praying and kind of living the disciplines, instant and season and out. You fall, pray. There's no power. Samson, you know, thought he could, you know, have a, a girlfriend for every day of the week and not even a Jewish one. The Lord told him, don't, don't go date, dating the Philistine ladies. And if it's... Uh, Samson never met a Philistine girl that he didn't want to marry. (laughs) And so strike one, strike two, strike three, and then he falls asleep on Delia's lap, and he gets up, and he's like, oh, I'm going to shake myself the way I used to. Oh, no, you're not. It's the day of evil, and you're not in fellowship, and there's no power. There's no oomph. There's no nothing, and you're caught. Why? Because you've been playing games, running on fumes, and not ready But these bad boys weren't ready. That's what was going on. One last little funny thing. Acts chapter 19. There were seven sons of a high priest. And they thought exercising demons was, oh, wow, that's so cool. So they heard of a bad case, right? And so they went in, the seven sons, seven boys go into a household. And they, 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 they talk to the demon and they say, hey, in the name of the Jesus that Paul the Apostle preaches, we say to you, come out. And the Spirit says to them, Jesus I know, Paul I've heard about, but who are you? (laughs) And it jumped on him, the person jumped on him and beat him so badly, beat them all so badly, that Acts chapter 19, read it for yourself, they left bleeding and naked. He tore their robes off of them, and they went out of the house screaming. Why? It's not about a magic formula. It's about living in right relationship. The vine and the branch joined together so the power can flow. That's what he's asking for. So he says, hey, live like tomorrow. You're going to face a big test, so you'll be ready for the big test. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this wonderful passage just brimming with insight for us all. And Lord, we can't do anything with it unless you help us, Lord. Sort it out in our heads and our hearts. Help us to apply these truths, Lord. It's easy in the moment, but hard when we're down the mountaintop having to live it out and duke it out. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. 
If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.